How's everybody doing tonight? It's good? It is good to be here with you on a warmer Sunday night, right? I, I'm here to talk about Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, and I recognize that this passage is about persecution, and I find it interesting that I just returned from Florida, and uh, they were busting on me when we were praying before the service tonight. They said, oh, is your, is your tan itch? Is that the persecution? So I, I don't... Um, I don't have some uh, readily accessible at my fingertips persecution that I've felt in the last couple of weeks as we laid on a beach and uh, hung out at Universal. <laughs> you want me to stop talking about it? <clears throat> but we had a great time. It's good to be back. It's good to be with you. And when, by the time we got back, it was like 40 here. So I don't know what you guys are all upset about. I guess it snowed a lot, huh? As soon as we got to Florida, I looked at Facebook and it was like, oh my gosh, there's like all the snow. It was negative four. So I'm glad we missed it. But anyways, now that I've related to you and you all hate me, let's, let's get into the word. Um, turn to Acts chapter 8. We're back into the book of Acts. And as we've talked about over several weeks, um, we see the second, really the second part of Luke's letter. And you see the first part as being his recitation of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the book of Luke. And now Luke has gone on. Luke, who was a doctor who um, spent time with um, Barnabas, he spent time with apostles, he spent time through the growth and the expansion of the church after the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. And, and he, he wrote these letters, and now here, here is this letter, the book of Acts, as he has laid out Really, to Theophilus, but, but many times they would write a letter to a specific person understanding that there was a greater, greater group of people who were going to benefit from a documentation of the growth and the expansion of the church. And so Luke has done this, understanding that many would benefit from this letter, understanding that this uh, event, this the spreading of the gospel of, the Jesus, of Jesus Christ and the spreading of the church of Jesus Christ needed to be documented as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the book of Acts. We see his incredible recitation of this amazing moment in the history of the world where the church of Jesus Christ first begins to expand and spread throughout first the, the small town where it began and then begins to expand as promised in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, into Judea, Samaria, and then as we'll begin to read into the uttermost parts of the world. Luke shows, really you see the purpose of him writing this book to be for several reasons. First of all, he's, he's showing that Christianity isn't something that should be illegal in the Roman world and people should not be persecuted, thrown in jail for it. He's, you see that as a theme of his writing, as you see, as he demonstrates that Christianity, much like Judaism, isn't something that the Romans should be threatened by or find to be illegal and to imprison them for. Um, you see him writing this for the purpose of really um, showing what the apostles did. I think one of the purposes of the book of Acts, as you see Luke write it, is he, he really demonstrates something that was a concern early on in the church that, that maybe Peter and Paul didn't get along or had two separate ministries. But you see, as Luke writes the book of Acts, he shows that Peter and Paul are very similar, that their ministries were in sync, that the two of them related to one another, that Paul shows great respect for Peter, that they uh, 
they use Old Testament scriptures that are similar as the basis for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the prophecies that pointed to Christ and the expansion of the church. You see uh, Luke writing the book of Acts for that purpose as well. And you see here in, in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, something is demonstrated in the life of the church that is so, as I read this this week or the last couple of weeks, thinking about tonight, is so relevant to us right now here at Renovation Church. He documents for the first time in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, great persecution after the death of Stephen and the spreading of the church outside of their small context into Judea and Samaria and then beyond because of the persecution that comes from the killing of Stephen. And so you see this moment documented. And let's take a minute today and, or tonight and read it together. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And Saul approved of his execution, speaking of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out, and many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. I love this verse in verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. Amen? Change. The word, well, the words change and church usually don't fit together, do they? The words change in church many times don't fit together, especially when things are going well. I mean, think about the first seven chapters of the book of Acts. You have the church growing. You know, it says several times the church is expanding in number. You have things going incredibly well. Fellowship. People are, are all giving to one another. People are sharing everything. No one is, is with need in the church. Um, you got Peter's your pastor. John's the youth pastor, I guess. Um, you know, there appear to be both a priority and an enjoyable feature of church life. Um, th things seem to be going incredibly well. And then you see, as they begin to be, get bold, as they're threatened and their boldness grows, you see Stephen standing up and preaching the gospel and, and him being killed. And the, the killing of Stephen is the catalyst for great persecution in the church. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 8. As he's killed, it is the catalyst now for great persecution. And we see Saul, who later on, as everybody I hope knows, or I'm going to tell you right now, becomes Paul, who becomes one of the most incredible allies and writes most of the New Testament. But you see him at this time, as phenomenal as he was as an apostle, as gifted and incredibly used he was by God in this moment, he seemed to be really good at what he did in ravaging and persecuting and going after the church throwing men and women in jail, 
approving of the killing of Saul or of Stephen. So things are going great, and all of a sudden, great persecution comes, and it causes. Now, th- catch this for a minute. This persecution causes Acts chapter one verse eight to be fulfilled. The great persecution causes them to step outside of Jerusalem and to be dispersed and to be scattered into Judea and Samaria. Change and church usually don't fit together. Let me say it this way. Persecution, as we see in this chapter, helps bring about God's unstoppable mission in our lives. Persecution helps bring about God's unstoppable mission in our lives. Now, I don't believe that God necessarily is the one who causes evil to happen, but he uses it to bring about his unstoppable purpose in our lives. Amen? Difficulty, persecution, um, tough things are certainly a part of what we are promised to experience. It's difficult to say amen to that, but amen, right? That's the deal. I know some people in American church have been sold sometimes a gospel, quote unquote, that talks about this idea of if you come to Jesus, stuff's going to get great, everything's going to get better, and everything will be great. And then you see all these American people who at one point were in church, and at one point maybe raised their hand and walked down front in an aisle or something like that, or, or claimed to be saved. You see them throw it away and say, that Christianity didn't work for me. Well, <laughs> that wasn't the gospel. It didn't work for you because that wasn't the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is something completely different. And what we understand is, as we sung about tonight, the oceans get deep, the waves crash in. But it, it, and, and the idea isn't that you're not going to go through persecution or difficulty or as a church body, uh, as we're on mission with Jesus, that we're not going to face adversity or difficulty. The reality and the promises is that we don't ever face it alone. That Jesus is there, that we can, as we sung about tonight, we can reach out in the midst of a wave that's crashing in, and instead of looking at the wave as Peter did, all we need to do is look to Jesus and cry out to him and have faith because he will be there. He will back his play. He has called us to this mission, Renovation Church. He's called us to do what we're doing right now, and he's going to back his play. As we step out, he'll be there. But the reality is, we're going to face persecution, and as the Bible describes this persecution in Acts, and as he describes it to us, it's a good thing. It can be a good thing. God's going to use it. Think about it for a minute. Now, I remember when we started Missio, we were in the basement of the Baptist Convention. I was playing a djembe. Jim was the only one who could play guitar and sing at the same time, so he was leading worship, Dan Ludwig was doing sound, whatever sound we needed, Um, and I think Jordan's aunts were there and my parents and in-laws, and it wasn't comfortable and it wasn't easy, and God began to bless what he was doing in that place, and we got to a place where it was like, believe me, when we moved into that building downtown off West Genesee Street, it was like, I mean, you should have seen us at Henniger, you know, wheeling crates, and, and the Maisies know they did this at a different local high school, and, and wheeling stuff in and setting up and tearing down, and, and we finally got to this building, and we're at Missio Church downtown, and we have our own space, and there's offices, and it's comfortable, and we can set the band stuff up, and we can leave it. We don't have to tear it down. It's amazing. Every week. And then we said, huh, there's a lot of people hanging out in the northern suburbs. Why don't we 
plant a church up there. The comfortable reaction would be, no, we just got here. (laughs) We just got comfortable. Why don't you take a bunch of people, get together, and hang out in a youth room on a Sunday night in Liverpool? There's nothing about that that says easy. There's nothing about that that says comfort. There's nothing about that that says I can just drop my kids off at the big mega church and everybody's going to take care of them and the rooms look like extreme makeover edition, like children's rooms and they're having a blast and, and I'm walking in and served and kill, you know. No, we're church planning. God has us on mission because the gospel of Jesus Christ needs to be preached here. So here we are on Sunday night in Liverpool in a youth room. Is everybody with me? <laughs> God, to some degree, has dispersed us. I want, you to, I want you to think about this for a minute and, and turn with me to James chapter 1 because when he talks about this dispersing of the people of God in Acts chapter 8, he's referencing James chapter 1 and Peter chapter 1. So I want us to turn there for a minute. You think I would have marked it in my Bible? I didn't. You know what's funny? This is so much easier on my phone now. Because you can put notes in it, and I did that. So he references this in James chapter 1. And I want you to read this with me. It's a familiar passage. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. And here you see James referencing the dispersing of the 12 tribes. And and what he's talking about is he's talking about the 12 tribes being dispersed when they were overcome by Assyria and different nations. And and he's he's relating the church of Jesus Christ as almost a a new Israel. And he's saying to these people who are being dispersed, and it's the same word used here in Acts, as they were dispersed and as as they were spread out. Listen to his instructions to them. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Another version says endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Think about that for a minute. As James is encouraging those who have been dispersed, who have been spread, who have been sent out because of the persecution of the church, he says, count it all joy as you encounter various trials because the testing of your faith, it produces steadfastness. It produces endurance. It does something in you that can't happen in times of blessing and prosperity. You guys, I gotta say this. Sometimes success and prosperity and blessing are our biggest challenge. Sometimes when things are great and comfortable and prosperous, we become complacent 
and we enjoy and we sit and, and we are in a place where, listen, we're not learning what we need to learn like we do in times of trouble and in times of trials. And so in his encouragement, James looks at the believers and he says, count it all joy. Count it as a joyful thing when you encounter various trials because the testing of your faith produces endurance. How many of you have ever tried CrossFit before? Doreen, Maisie. All right, listen. My brother opened a CrossFit gym. So for me, it was free, and I had no excuse. And being fat and overweight and out of shape, I began to realize that I should probably do something about this. And I'll never forget the first time I went into the CrossFit gym, and we did the first thing that was on the screen to do, and I was dying, literally seeing spots, felt like I needed to go into the bathroom and and throw up. And 10 minutes later, I began to realize this was just the warm-up. This wasn't even what they call the WAD, the workout of the day. And then, as I'm sitting there feeling like I can't even lift my arms, I can't breathe, the workout came up on the screen, and I looked at my brother, and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Are you out of your mind? Like, this is insane. But as I went through that pain <laughs> and trouble and difficulty, I have found over time that I can get through the warm-up, that I can do pull-ups without bands anymore. Like, I used to have to stand in the big, fat, green band so that it, like, propped me up so I could do pull-ups. Now I can do them without the bands. And the, and the, the, the difficulty, the, the pressure, the resistance that I experienced has now produced something or is beginning to produce something in me called endurance or steadfastness, an ability to go farther than I could go before. It's interesting when you see people that you know just worked hard in their life. And they have endurance. They have a strength about them. They have something that can only be caused in their life through resistance, through difficulty, through trial. I love men and women like that. When you see them and they're just, they're, you know, I, I, had, I had a pastor. When you shook his hand, it was like you were going to die. Like he just, he had hands the size of my arms. You knew he worked hard. You knew he was the kind of man that knew what it was to work. And when he grabbed a hold of you, you knew it. You knew he had a hold of you. You meet people that are kind of soft. You ever meet soft people? You shake their hand and it's kind of limp. You know, you get the soft. I was down in New York City for a DA's conference. And I happened to be at a, at a thing with uh, uh, a bunch of people that are those people, you know. And, and so I'm there with the elected DA's and the attorney general and the governors and all those types of people over there. And you're standing around. And I'm standing in a group of people and we're at kind of like a cocktail party and we're talking I'm standing over my boss, and I look over, and there's one of these Manhattan elite dudes, you know, and he was wearing eyeliner. (laughs) And I said to my boss, I was like, is that dude wearing eyeliner? (laughs) And my boss said, give me a second, and he walked over, and he started talking to the guy, and he kind of stood in a group with that guy, and he came back, and he looked at me, and he's like, yeah, yeah, he's he's, he's wearing eyeliner. And it's just, you know... I got off track. (laughs) Difficulty produces endurance. Resistance produces an ability to go further next time. You know people who have worked hard, right? You know people who have endurance. You see those those runners, like just you can see it, like Graham Ardner. Like you see those dudes, like he's like a Kenyan. The guy can run forever. And, and, and it's because of resistance, it's because of endurance, because he gets out and he runs 50 miles in a, in a couple of days. Like, I, I, 
it, it, it's, it's, it's a reality of life. And God has called us to encounter difficulty. And as a church body, listen, we're here right now in this place. And it's not easy. And it's not comfortable. And it's not like going to the big comfortable church down the street. But we're doing it because God's called us to be on mission with him. And we're producing something in this body that's called endurance. And he has called men and women to sack up and step up and do what he's called us to do. Amen? He's called us to step up and be men and women and take it and go forward and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of difficulty. This is not an easy place to preach the gospel. This is not an easy place to live a life that demonstrates what it means to be a follower of Christ. But he's called us to do it and he's going to back his play. Amen? Amen. I was impacted by a story a few years ago. And they've since made a movie about it, but I was impacted by the story when I grabbed the book. I think a friend of mine had the book. He said, you've got to check it out. It was a military book, and I picked it up, and I began to read it. And it was one of those books that when you grab it, it was like 2 in the morning. Trish is like, are you going to ever shut the light off? And she looks over, and i got like tears coming. She's like, are you crying? Like, what's and it was one of those books I couldn't put down called Lone Survivor. Some of you may have read it or seen the movie. Marcus Luttrell. In early 2000, as you open the book, you read about this man who just graduated in early 2000 SEAL Buds training. And in the book, he describes what he went through. And you read in the beginning of this book, this man who as a young man in Texas, always wanted to be in the Special Forces, always wanted to be a Navy SEAL, and, 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 and ran into a man early in his life who was a Vietnam War veteran who had a camp down in Texas, and he began to train, even as early as 14 years old, he began to train and think about what he was going to do with his life, and he set that goal, and he, he went after it, and he went to SEAL training, and you see him describe in the book this SEAL training, and as you're reading it, I remember reading it thinking, these guys are nuts, man. Like, it's just in, insane difficulty, insane resistance. Uh, physical training that, that would cause your body to break. Mental, mental wearing that would cause you to fall apart. Uh, you, you, you read of these men laying in the, in the wake, in the waves of cold, cold uh, ocean water with their arms linked, just laying there, freezing, starving, tired, and shaking as the water pours on them, and they wash up into the, into the waves and come back and wash up, and they lay there for hours as they were freezing and mentally tired. And, and as you're reading about the training and the resistance and the difficulty that they go through and how many of them actually quit and can't make it because they're not mentally tough enough, you sit there and you ask yourself, why? Why would they put themselves through this type of resistance? Why would they allow themselves to go through this kind of beating and torture and difficulty? Then you get to the part of the book where you read about June 27, 2005. Four-man SEAL team was inserted between two mountains in Afghanistan. Sao Taulo and Gadigal Sar, a peak just south of the first one in Afghanistan. Lieutenant Michael Murphy, gunner mate second class Danny Dietz, sonar technician Matthew Axelson, and hospital corpsman first class Marcus Luttrell. They're inserted into Afghanistan, the four men, on a very, very top secret mission called 
Operation Red Wings, and their goal was to go after a very, very high-level Taliban target in the villages just down from the mountains where the helicopters dropped them off. And as they stood in the woods preparing to go and get onto a peak where they could look down into the village to find the target that they were looking for, a goat herder and his son and another man came upon them with their hundreds of goats. They had been found. They captured, tied up the three Afghanis, and they began to debate among themselves what they should do. In the midst of the debate, Marcus Luttrell said, ah, we can't kill him. Uh, Michael Murphy, who was the lieutenant and the commander of the four men, made the decision after a, a great amount of debate. He said, listen, we can either tie him up and they're going to die up here, we can kill him, or we can let him go, and they're going to run right down into the Taliban village and they're going to tell everybody we're here. And they opted to let them go. Within an hour, they were surrounded by hundreds of Taliban. They began to fight for their lives, these four men. And you read this story of these guys, and if you see the movie, it's just almost too much to take in. As the four of these elite athletes, incredible men, fight for their lives, fight for each other, they begin to jump off cliffs because they have nowhere to go. They're pinned down at the edge of these sheer cliffs and they jump off. Marcus Luttrell describes the fact that he believed God was with him because every time he would land at the bottom of the cliff, his rifle would land next to him and he could pick it up and keep firing. And they would pin down. They were killing many, many of the Taliban. And eventually, they lost Danny Dietz. He was killed. After his thumb was shot off and he was severely injured and severely wounded, he continued to fight and eventually succumbed to his injuries and died. You see Matt Axelson passes away as well. Lieutenant Michael Murphy, who received the Congressional Medal of Honor, at this moment, they were having difficulty getting calling for help because they were in a gulch in, in between these two mountains, and their sonar, their radio wouldn't work. They couldn't get any reception. He couldn't call for them to come and help and try to save them and rescue them. So Lieutenant Michael Murphy got up, told Marcus Luttrell he was going to call for help, got on top of a large rock out in the middle of the battlefield, badly wounded, already shot, sat on top of the rock, called for help as he was taking shots and asked for the help, was able to get service and notify the other Navy SEALs and Rangers that were nearby where they were, hung up the phone, was shot a few more times, ran up the hill and died. An incredible hero. And Marcus Luttrell when he finally gains consciousness, is shot, broken back, badly, badly injured and fractured leg, and shrapnel throughout his body, crawls on his hands and, and belly, on his elbows and his belly for over a mile until he's eventually rescued by these villagers who are a Pashtun village. And they grab Marcus Luttrell and they have a thousand-year-old tradition that if they take somebody in, they protect them with their lives. And as the Taliban attempted to go into this village, the Pashtuns protected Marcus Luttrell, would not let the Taliban come and get him. And these Pashtuns are tough, tough people. The Taliban didn't want to mess with them either. And uh, they stood guard. They stood guard outside of his house. He, he, he recalls watching these men protect him until the army is able to gain his location and come in and rescue him. 
As I watch that story, as I read about that story, and as I think about the SEAL training that Marcus Luttrell went through, it answers the question why, doesn't it? I mean, as I watched this thing on a movie screen, reading it was, was unbelievable, but as I watched the thing on a movie screen, I began to realize these dudes are tough, tough guys. These guys went through a lot, and they kept going. Who can crawl for over a mile after being shot with a broken back and shrapnel? How do you do that? You do it because he's encouraged such, such resistance. He's encouraged such training and such difficulty that it has produced an endurance in him that's frankly remarkable, Right? Here's the church. They're comfortable. Things are going well. Stephen gets killed. They honor Stephen. And as they're dispersed, here's what they don't do. And I want you to think about this with me for a minute. When they're scattered, they didn't pack it in. They didn't give up. They didn't say this Jesus thing didn't work for me. As they went, what did they do? Look at verse Four, when scattered about, they're preaching the word. Read verse four with me. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word of God. As they're scattered, as difficulty comes, they continued to preach the word of God. As persecution came upon them, it pushed them out towards the mission of God, into Judea and into Samaria, and it produced something in them that caused them to continue going, but they didn't pack it in, they didn't give up, they didn't quit, they didn't say this didn't work for me, they didn't say it's too tough, they didn't say I'm not being fed or the children's ministry isn't nice or the worship music isn't my style or the carpet's not the right color. They continued preaching the word of God, amen? How do we respond? Ask yourself this. How do you respond? How do I respond to tribulation? How do I respond to difficulty? I can tell you that standing in my living room the other night, I responded the exact same way that Jim Beheim did to that call. <laughs> I jumped off my couch. I was already off the couch, wasn't I? I'm sorry, Sophia. And I screamed. I don't think I said the same words he did because I was reading his lips. But I screamed. <laughs> How do you respond to difficulty? How do you respond to tribulation? How do you respond when things get tough? Do you pack it in? Do you quit? Do you say this didn't work for me? Do you move on? Or does it cause you to press into Jesus, recognizing what the gospel of Jesus Christ means in your life and what he's causing in you? what he's doing in you. Are you able to gain perspective in the midst of tribulation and trial and not look at the waves, but look at him and say, Jesus, what are you doing in my life? What are you trying to produce in me? This is so difficult. I don't know how to go through it. I don't know how to experience it. I've never had anything this tough happen to me before, but Jesus, I'm gonna look to you and I'm gonna say, what are you trying to do in me, God? And how can I respond the right way so that you produce something in me that gives me a steadfastness, amen? That's what I want in my life. I want God to produce in me endurance. I want him to produce in me a steadfastness so that when I go through it next time, I have something in me that says, oh, I've been there, and Jesus is there for me. He's with me. He's walking me through, and I know exactly what this is like because I've done it before, and I've seen him be faithful over and over and over again. Amen? Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. For the testing of your faith produces endurance. Go with me to Peter chapter 1. 
Peter chapter 1. It's 1 Peter, sorry. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, again, speaking of those scattered, of the dispersion in Pontius Galatia, and a bunch of other words. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of your Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded. Listen to this. Listen to verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen? I love how Peter speaks to these people who are dispersed, who are encountering for this very moment, for a little while, you're encountering various trials. He starts out with what? The gospel of Jesus Christ, who has saved you, who saved me. Listen to that in the beginning of 1 Peter. Blessed be the God, in verse 3, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Here's the reality of difficulty. Here's the reality of persecution. Here's the reality of trials that you encounter, that we encounter, individually and corporately as a church. It's all about perspective. If your perspective is gospel-centered, there's nothing you can't go through. If your perspective has at the center of it, if your life has at the core of it, the gospel of Jesus Christ who saved you, who died for you, who paid the price for you, who has given you an inheritance that never fails, that's unperishable, that's undefiled, that's kept for you, that he has in his hands for you because it's all about what he's done for you. If your perspective is gospel-centered, it doesn't matter what you encounter on the outside. I used to have a youth group years ago in Boston called Inside Out, and the reason I call them that is because many times people live their lives with everything on the outside, shakes them and throws them like waves being tossed about in the book of James. But the reality is if the gospel's at the center of your life, what's on the inside affects the outside. And it doesn't matter what sin or the world or Satan or circumstance or this fallen place throws at you. 
On the inside, you are anchored to the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can walk through difficulty and trials. Here's what you get to know. At the end of it, God's going to produce in you good. He is going to use it for good. He is out to do you good. He loves you. He will preserve you. He has you in his hands. And he's going to produce an endurance and a toughness and an ability in you that's remarkable and it's God-given because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? He wants to do it in your life, he wants to do it in my life, and he wants to do it in our church as we walk together. I'm so excited that we are embarking on a time as a church when we are covenanting together as members, when we're saying, yes, we're together, we are members, we are in covenant with one another, and we're going to walk through this thing together, and we're going to present the gospel of Jesus Christ to this area as the body of Christ, as we covenant together with each other. That's an exciting moment, because there's nothing we can't do with the gospel at the center and the people of Jesus Christ standing with each other as we walk through this together, amen? Difficulty drove them to preach the gospel in difficult areas. I want to read verse 5 to you. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. In verse 6, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him, they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. This difficulty, this persecution, as it spread them out, it drove them into Samaria. Samaria is not an easy area. Philip was called, as Stephen began to proclaim the gospel and was killed, it, it brought Philip to a place where he was called for the first time to step out of Jerusalem and go into Samaria and begin to preach the gospel in Samaria. And Samaria was not an easy place for a Jewish man to go and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. As you guys know, Samaritans were, were, were people that Jews didn't associate with, that they would walk around Samaria. And you see in John chapter 4 when Jesus walks right through and sits at the, with the woman at the well in Samaria. And this was something that was unheard of. John Stott said this in his commentary, it's hard for us to conceive the boldness of the step Philip took in preaching the gospel to Samaritans. For the hostility between Jews and Samaritans had lasted about a thousand years. It began with the breakup of the monarchy in the 10th century B.C. when 10 tribes defected, making Samaria their capital, and only two tribes remained loyal to Jerusalem. It became steadily worse when Samaria was captured by Assyria in 722 B.C. Thousands of its inhabitants were deported, and the country was repopulated by foreigners. Not till the 4th century B.C., however, did the Samaritan schism harden with the building of their rival temple, on Mount Gerizim, in their repudiation of all Old Testament scripture except the Pentateuch, the Samaritans were despised by the Jews as hybrids in both race and religion, and both heretics and schismatics. That was John Stott. So this is something that's been going on for thousands of years. They, they, they were hardened to these people. These people didn't like each other. They were considered hybrids. They were considered a cult. They were considered a group of people that they wouldn't associate with. But this persecution, and as Acts chapter 1 says, you're going to go into Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Well, the church was just hanging out in Jerusalem. They were comfortable in Jerusalem, and Stephen was killed. The persecution and the trials began, and they scattered, and Philip in boldness went right into Samaria and began to preach the gospel. Is that what it's going to take? 
Is that what it's going to take for us? What is holding us back? What is stopping us from proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who we speak the same language, relate to, live with, hang out with our kids with, go to work with, hang out at the mall or wherever you go? What is preventing us from opening our mouths and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ? Discomfort? It's not a comfortable conversation. Oh, we don't talk about religion and politics. I don't want to make dinner awkward. Because we're standing on the sideline at a game and our kids are out on the field playing. I just don't want the conversation to get weird. Things are comfortable right now. What has God called us to? How has he called us to do it? What is it going to take for us to step out and begin to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? The most amazing thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The preaching of the gospel by Stephen brought persecution. Guess what else it brought? Great joy in the city. The thing that brought the persecution that cost the life of Stephen and that scattered the people of God into, into Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts as Philip stepped up and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, God as he always does, the faithful God backed his word Men and women were healed, demons were cast out, people were set free, and in verse 8, it caused great joy in the city. Amen? How many of you think we need great joy in this city? Beyond a good basketball team, we need great joy in this city. We know people whose marriages are falling apart, and they need great joy. Their children are being devastated and destroyed. Like, as, as the word ravaging is used in Acts chapter 8 in relationship to Saul and what he's doing to the church. Sin in Liverpool and in Baldwinsville and in Clay and in these suburbs is ravaging our children. It's ravaging our families. It is ravaging people all over the place. And if you don't think that's true, pick up a newspaper. I see it in my job every day. I see the destruction of children being absolutely devastated by the sin of this world. And we need the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring great joy. I know our politicians, they're not going to do it. I know, I know the businessmen, and so do you, they're not going to do it. I can't put people in jail enough to do it the police force or law enforcement or elected officials can't do it the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can bring joy to the families in this area the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can save people that can rescue them not just for the from their sin and not just from an eternity separated from God but it can rescue them from the devastations in this world by sin from their selfishness and the, and the desires of their heart that's destroying their lives. God can step in and heal people. You know how I know it? Because he did it to me. He's done it in my life. 
He's rescued me from a life of destruction. Now I get to be with the wife of my youth who I love desperately. I have wonderful children and I'm living a life where, where God is, his, where there's difficulty and there's trials, but there's blessing. Why? Because, because God has rescued me from the destruction of sin. And he has called us as a church to be here and to proclaim it with our words and with our lives as we live among the people that he's called us to be among. And you say, who's going to come and who's going to save the people of Liverpool and Baldwinsville in my workplace and in my schools and in, and in this area? Listen, we don't have to call for a Billy Graham crusade or a Louis Palau crusade. God has put you there. He's put me there. He saved you, not for you to go to heaven, as the old youth pastor Wendell Smith used to say, he didn't save you to go to heaven. If that was the case, we should go now. He saved you to be where you are because he wants to use you. He wants to, he wants to produce something in you that gives you the boldness and the ability and the courage and the guts to stand up as a man and a woman who's been rescued by the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaim it even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's difficult, to speak into the lives of someone else and let them know the only thing that can bring them joy and save them is Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what he's called us to do. I love that. We, there is great joy in the city. God's going to do that here. He's going to use us to do it. Here's my conclusion. And this is to me, as much as anybody else in this room, the first thing I wrote down in conclusion Man up. God's called us to be a little tougher. We need to man up. We need to be willing to sacrifice. We need to be willing to give more. We need to be willing to sacrifice more. We need to be willing to experience some difficulty. If it's uncomfortable, it's okay. If it's not exactly how you'd want it, that's all right. Because God wants to produce something in us that demonstrates the gospel to people who need to hear it. Amen? We need to get gospel perspective on our difficulties and our trials, amen? That is easier said. I understand it. Some of you have been through things or are currently going through things that I can't begin to understand. But here's what I know as I stand on the authority of the world, word of God. He knows and he understands. And the gospel of Jesus Christ can give you the perspective to go through it, amen? And he's gonna be right by your side as we sung about today. We need to man up. We need to get a gospel perspective. We need to put our heads down and we need to work and we need to get it done. No matter what we keep, no matter what happens in our lives, as we go out, wherever God sends us, whatever difficulty we go through, we need to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, amen? We need to keep hold of the gospel, that which has gotten hold of us, and we need to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can tell you right now as a leadership team, this church will preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're never gonna bend on that. We're never gonna walk away from that. We're never gonna go weeks at a time talking about other things. We're centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ, amen? Lastly, in conclusion, our greatest adversaries could end up being our greatest allies. As you see in this passage, Saul becomes Paul. Those who are persecuting you, tearing you down, keep preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Keep walking forward and living the way God's called you to live. And that person or those people could end up being Paul. Amen? I look for that day. And lastly, the gospel of Jesus Christ brings great joy. Amen? Listen, the gospel works. It works. God's word 
changes people's lives. He knows what he's doing. Let's just do what he's called us to do, no matter how tough it is, without question. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you. I guess we have to say tonight, we thank you for various trials. We thank you for persecution. We thank you for difficulty that comes our way because we know you're with us, because we know you're doing something in us, because we know you have a plan that is unstoppable, and we're so grateful that we get to be a part of it. Give us gospel-centered perspective tonight. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.